Well, dear ones, the last time we were in the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to remember that we had learned to make a fine distinction between self-defense and vengeance. Yes, we as the people of God have the right to defend ourselves physically in an attack or some other innocent person, but we don't have the right morally to be a vengeful or spiteful people. Now, I mention that today because as we continue in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, I think we're called once again to make a fine distinction. And the distinction that we're going to be making today in this passage is, yes, we must hate sin, but we must love sinners. And the reason for this is because you and I, as believers in Christ, are uniquely the sons and daughters of God. And therefore, if we belong to him, we have to love like he does. He loves his enemies. We're called to do the same. Think of it this way. If God was loving towards us while we were yet his enemies, so much so that he was willing to send his son to die for us, how much more should you and I be willing to be gracious and merciful and loving to our enemies as well? That is the great high calling that Christ is calling us to. And perhaps this is per, perhaps I think the most difficult of all of the messages we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, to love one's enemies. Now with that, though, I want to begin as I have in the past by laying out what I think are the false assumptions of the Israelites as I think they were misreading the Old Testament. And I do this to show you that oftentimes when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament, but the misunderstanding and misapplication of it by the Israelites. So today in our Matthew passage in Matthew 5.43, Jesus will be citing from this Leviticus 19.18 passage. In fact, I will just read what he reads He will say, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then right after that, Jesus will add, and hate your enemy. And you might say to yourself, well, that's not found in this text, and you're right. The idea of hating one's enemy. In fact, hating one's enemy is not a command found in any particular Old Testament text. There were, however, Old Testament texts in which God called the Israelites to judge specific people groups because of their rebellion, and so that they would not live like them. I'm thinking of the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Termites, as it goes, uh, the Amalekites. There's so many. In fact, I want you to see this for yourself. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Again, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. So what my contention is, is that the Israelites took specific judgments on specific people groups And Israel said, let's make it generic. Let's hate all of the nations. That is, at least some Israelites were doing that. I think that that's what they were prone to do. So notice here in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, you're going to see this Amalek being judged. That is the Amalekites. Notice in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 25, the Lord said through Moses, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. Let's stop there for just a moment. Who was this Amalek? Well, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And just as Esau hated Israel, so did Amalek. And therefore, the Amalekites, what they would do is they would strike the Israelites as they were going through their wilderness wanderings, their stragglers. They were attacking them viciously. And so notice it says in verse 18, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear When you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all the surrounding enemies 
in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Notice the Lord isn't telling them to be forgiving and forget the past transgressions, but rather they are to never forget. And so from passages like this, I think you see that, yes, they were to have a special animosity towards some of these enemies. The sad thing is, I think Israel generalized it. And they said, yeah, we love our fellow Israelites, but everyone outside, we're called to hate. I think that that's the error that they're making. Now, outside of the law, we see things like this in the psalm. David writes here, Psalm 139, 21 through 22. David asked the rhetorical question, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? What's the obvious answer to that question? Well, of course he does. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, one thing I want you to think about is I want you to think about the difference between us as believers under the new covenant and Israel and David under the old covenant. Remember, David is unique. He is a king over a theocratic kingdom. Now, do you and I have an address, a kingdom here and now that you and I have to guard? No, we will one day when Christ returns in the millennial kingdom, we will have a kingdom that has an address, but now our kingdom is in heaven. And so, dear ones, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ living during the church age, we are not called to be vessels of God's vengeance as at times Israel was. But instead, we are called to be vessels of mercy, armed with the gospel upon our lips and endowed with the forgiveness of God and love in our hearts, even towards our enemies. Again, that's the high calling that Christ is calling us to. Now, as we proceed here, then, in the first three verses of Matthew 5, 43 through 45, we're going to see that once again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to refute not the Old Testament, but the misapplication of the Old Testament. Notice what he says. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is notice in the beginning where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. And then he, gets, he says in verse 44, but I say to you, again, Jesus is not correcting the Scriptures, but the misunderstanding in misapplication of the Scriptures by the Israelites. That's what's going on. Notice in blue, here's our Leviticus 19.18 passage, you shall love your neighbor. But again, there was no specific text in the Old Testament that went on to say, and hate your enemy. But again, that was a summary from the specific judgment text that the Israelites had made in error. Turn your Bibles again to Deuteronomy 20, 17. I'm going to show you another passage where there were specific groups that Israel was to judge. We want to see this so that we see the error that Israel was probably making, taking specific text and making a generality, but also to see the distinction between Israel under the Old Covenant, often used as vessels of vengeance by God, and us as New Covenant Christians called to be vessels of mercy. Notice Deuteronomy 20.17. I hope you've turned there. Here you have certain people groups that are laid out for karem which means they're devoted to utter destruction. Why? Because their judgment 
is coming upon them because they were so pagan and God does not want his people to follow after them. And he knows they will be tempted to do so. So Deuteronomy 20, 17, he says, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. They were all devoted to Karam. And from this, I think the Israelites developed this ethos where they say, yes, we love our fellow Israelite, but we hate the outsider. In fact, notice here in blue, this again is Leviticus 19.18. One verse prior to that in Leviticus 19.17, there were two terms that denoted a fellow citizen. The two terms that were used, ak is countryman and amit, a fellow citizen. The reason I'm mentioning that is certainly the Israelite would have understood their neighbor as a fellow Israelite. Therefore, if you're not a fellow Israelite, we don't have to love you. That was the error that they were making, despite the fact that in passages like Isaiah 42 through 49, they were called to be a light to the Gentile nations. They were generically to be a light to all of the Gentiles. And so, yes, they were to love. But again, they took the specifics and they generalized a hatred towards their enemies. And so notice what Jesus does. He corrects this. He says, but I say to you, what are we to do as new covenant Christians? He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice this idea of love entails two things. First of all, it's a mindset in which we desire good things to come to our enemies, that we really would be those who live out, do unto others as you want done unto you that we would have that mindset even towards our enemies. But notice we're also to act on it. We always act on love and doing good things and being benevolent to our enemies, even as God is benevolent to his. That's the calling that Christ is giving us here today. Now, notice added to that, he says, pray for those who what? Who persecute you. And here, when he says to those who persecute you, that gives you an inkling, a hint as to what Christ means by our enemies. It's going to be those who hate us for the sake of Christ's name. Now, can you think of anything more benevolent and loving than taking an enemy of ours and lifting them before the throne of grace so that our Heavenly Father, the Creator of all things, the Holy One of Israel, can act on their behalf? I can't think of anything more loving than that. And that is precisely the calling that we're called to, why we're vessels of mercy not vessels of vengeance, or people who are endowed with the gospel, not the sword. That's the idea that's being laid out here. Now, notice in verse 45, we're given a purpose statement. This is the reason why you and I should love and pray for those who persecute us. Notice in the box, he says, so that. That conjunction, hopos, is a purpose conjunction. It shows us the reason why we should love and pray for those who hate us. He says, so that you may be what? Notice on the underline, sons of your father. Implied, of course, would be sons and daughters of your father. Now, what does it mean to be a son or daughter of their father who is in heaven? In the New Testament time, and by the way, even in the Old Testament period, to be a son or daughter meant you were characterized by that which you were labeled. So, for example, Bob was talking about today in Sunday school, James and John. James and John, remember the sons of Zebedee? Well, Jesus calls them in Mark 3, 17, the sons of thunder. Now, sons of thunder meant they were characterized by that. They were very boisterous. They had fiery outbursts. In fact, 
if we looked at that today in Sunday school, Bob did a wonderful job. He showed us in Luke 9.54, here the sons of thunder wanted to call fire down upon the Samaritans because they didn't believe in Jesus. They were in error at that point. Jesus corrected them. So to be a son or daughter of your father in heaven means you think like him and you act like him. You're characterized by what he thinks and what he does. And so right after that, Jesus knows, notice he gives us an explanatory for. So he's explaining here how our heavenly father acts. He says, for he, that's God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. What Jesus is describing there by the sun rising on the evil and the good and the rain falling on the just and the unjust is what we theologians refer to as common grace. Common grace is where God puts unmerited favor, not just upon those who trust in Jesus. That's what we refer to as saving grace or special grace. So special or saving grace is where God pours unmerited favor on his people, enabling them to believe the gospel for the forgiveness of sins. That's a grace that lasts forever. But during this time period we're living in, there's a common grace in which God gives good things even to those who hate him. He does good things to even those who curse his name. Think about the immune system. How intricate is the immune system that protects every person? Does it only protect those who believe in Jesus? Or does the immune system fight the bacteria and the viruses within the unbeliever? It does the latter. And so God is good and gracious even to the unbeliever. And so the major point Jesus is driving at is if you and I are going to be like him in thought and deed, characterized by sons and daughters of God, we're going to have to love our enemies too. We're going to have to want to do them good rather than harm them. That's the high calling Christ is calling us to. Now, as we proceed in the last few verses of this section, we see Jesus exhort us to be different than the unbelieving world. Notice what he says. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, dear ones, here Jesus is calling us in the first two verses here, verse 46 and 47, he's calling us to be holy. Remember in Hebrew, the term for holy, kavosh, means to be other, to be different than the unregenerate world. And so what Jesus is laying out is that if you and I are like the tax collectors and the Gentiles, by the way, to his Jewish audience, you can't get any further from God than being a tax collector or a Gentile. And I think that there's some Christians here who think the tax collectors are the same in our day, right? But it's not true. You can be a believer in a tax gatherer. But the idea is that, hey, the tax collectors and the Gentiles, they even love their own. They love their own family. They love those who love them. And so if we just love in that way, are we really any different than the world? No. They can accomplish that. But if you and I will love our enemies, those who despise us, then you and I are demonstrating the love and the actions of God himself. That's what's being implied here. Now, 
Notice in verse 48, I believe here we have a summary, not just of this section, but everything that has proceeded thus far in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me give you a list of six things that we have been called not to be thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me list them for you. I have them listed off here. First of all, in the beginning, we're not to be murderers. We're not to be those who hate. We're not to be those who lust. We're not to be those who have deception and are oath-making. We're not to be people of vengeance. And we are not to be unloving even towards our enemies. Why? Because God doesn't do those things. And so here we see a very important fact that, yes, Jesus on the Mount is teaching Israelites who have seen God come in the flesh. Jesus is the Messiah, truly God, truly man. And in the incarnation, one error that could be made is to think that somehow when Jesus becomes man, the Son becomes man, that God came down to become like us. But here we are learning in this summary that, no, God came down so that his people could be like him. Not that you and I are going to make God into something less than he is, but that he'll make us into something more than we are. In fact, notice when he says you are to be perfect, the term there, teleos, it's a term probably some of you have heard in apologetics. It's where we get our term for the teleological argument. That means design presupposes a designer. Um, If you would walk on an ocean beach and you see drink Coca-Cola written in the sand, how many in here would say, wow, what are the coincidences? That's amazing. By chance, the waves did that? Well, of course, you'd know that's design. Therefore, someone must have done it, a designer. Well, how much more complex is the DNA code within us? far more complex. That design presupposes a designer. And so this term perfect can be rendered goal, but it wouldn't make any sense to say, well, therefore you are to be a goal as your heavenly father is a goal. That doesn't make any sense. Another way of rendering this, some scholars will say it means to be mature. Well, the problem with that is what does it mean that our heavenly father is mature? He matured from what? Right? So the point is, I think perfect here does mean what many scholars don't want to admit, and that is a perfection in the sense that God never misses morally, that he is perfect and he never makes an error morally or in any other thing that he does. And so we are called to be morally perfect as well. Now, this raises the question, of course, that God here seems to be commanding his people to do something that we cannot do in and of our own power. And by the way, this debate has raged throughout the history of the church. Remember Pelagius and his debates with Augustine, or later you had Erasmus with Luther. Remember Erasmus said, God would certainly never command human beings to do something that we don't have the ability to do. Oh, yes, he does. Was Erasmus reading the same Bible that I'm reading? Doesn't Leviticus 11.44, God says, be holy as I am holy? By the way, that's reiterated in 1 Peter 1.16. Yes, he does say that. So what do we conclude from that to say, well, that's it. Tomorrow, I'm being holy. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's it. Holy from now on. Perfect. No, we say, well, I need God's help for that. What about when Jesus commands in Mark 1.15 for everyone 
to repent and to believe the gospel. I'm going to show you later in our application, repentance is something God grants, and so is saving faith in Jesus. They're tied together like two sides of a salvific coin. Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. We don't have the ability as dead sinners born in Adam to do these things that God has commanded. And so if you're reading the Sermon on the Mount and you're coming away with the idea that, yes, I'm not going to murder, I'm not going to hate, I'm not going to lust, I'm not going to have deception, I'm not going to have an attitude of vengeance, and I'm going to completely love all of my enemies, and I'm going to be perfect in that sense starting tomorrow by my own power, you're misreading the Sermon on the Mount. The point is, we need a Savior who did do all these things. He's the one who never murdered, never hated, never had lust, never deceived. He's the one who is perfect. And so one of the messages from the Sermon on the Mount is we need by faith to be attached to Christ so that his perfection can, can be given to us. That's what we need. But the second error that we can make is to say, well, you know what? I know I can't be perfect. I'm not going to change. No, by the power of God, you will start to do these things. By the Spirit within you, you will start to be those who love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor and even your enemies as yourself. That's the high calling that Christ is calling his people. And again, not by our power, but by his. Okay, so with that, let me come to a couple of points of applications that I think flow from this text. Number one, We must know that God providentially cares for the unjust, but this does not mean they will not be judged in the future. One day, common grace will wear out, but saving grace never does. And so I'm going to use this as a segue to sharing the gospel. There's two things I want you to think about. For us believers, we can often think, hey, it's unfair. I'm suffering and I'm hurting because of the cause of Christ, and yet this unbeliever is all these good things happening to them because of common grace. We can start to think that, well, maybe there isn't a great benefit in being a Christian. I'll show you that, yes, there is. But the second thing for every unbeliever, they have to know one day the breath in their lungs and all the blessings that God has given in common grace, it's going to wear out. And God's vengeance and wrath will come. They need the gospel. Number two, we must understand that being sons and daughters of God means that we hate evil, but we love sinners. That's the high calling. We are to hate sin, but still love and be gracious to sinners. Let's begin with number one. One of the goals that Bob and I have had for years is to teach theology to the church. And so today, again, I want to help us understand the distinction between saving grace or what theologians will refer to as special grace and common grace. And again, in saving grace, that is where God pours out unmerited favor so that before the foundation of the world, he chose his people to be in Christ so that he would enable them to believe the gospel, have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. That saving grace will never wear out. Common grace is different because it's bestowed on the just and the unjust. The unjust has the same immune system we do. Of course, I know there's variances within people. But the idea is the immune system and the problems of life is not determined by whether one's a believer or not. You may have a believer who has a lot of crops and an unbeliever who has even more. Right? You don't know. You might have a believer who's wiped out by a tornado and the unbeliever's unscathed. You don't know. So the idea of 
common grace is that it's good for all people that shows the benevolence of God. And the point that Jesus is making with it today is if God is benevolent even towards his enemies, you and I have to be the same. In fact, Jesus talks about this today in our Matthew 5.45 where he says the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but the doctrine of common grace is all over the Bible. Let me show you another example of this. Here in Acts 14, verses 16 through 17, Paul, speaking here in Lystra, says, In the generations gone by, he, of course, that's God, permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good and gladness. Notice what you see highlighted in blue here, that he gave you rains from heaven and the fruitful seasons. That's God's common grace. That's exactly what Jesus is referring to. Now, we have to understand that and have a good concept or thought pattern concerning common grace. We have to get that. But the one error that some Christians can make is if God is gracious to the unbeliever, what advantage is there in being a believer? And I think that that was something that infected the church in Asia Minor. When I was studying for First and Second Peter years ago, I was convinced that one of the issues Christians ran into in Asia Minor is they saw themselves suffering terribly, and yet the unbeliever next door was doing well because of common grace. And they wrongly concluded that what advantage is there in being a believer? Well, turn your Bibles. Let me show you what I mean. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Please turn your Bibles there and I'll show you where those in Asia Minor may have been surprised that they were suffering and unbelievers were not. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Notice here in verse 12, Peter is talking to Christians. Notice he says, beloved, that's for Christians. It's not for any unbeliever. This is beloved. It's for believers. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. What was happening in Asia Minor is Christians were surprised that they were suffering and the unregenerate weren't. And from that, they said, well, what advantage is there in being a Christian? Dear ones, you and I can't think like that. We have to realize that one day common grace is going to wear out. The unbeliever needs to know that one day common grace is going to wear out. But the grace that doesn't ever wear out is God's saving grace. And so today I want unbelievers maybe here today or listening to know that one day God's common grace will wear out. And all that common grace will do for you, if you don't come to faith in Jesus Christ, it will make you more culpable before God. Why is that? Because God did you good things. He gave you breath in your lungs and immune system that function. He gave you blood clotting. Do you know how complex blood clotting is? Uh, I read a book by Michael Behe called Darwin's Black Box. He showed that it's so complex that if any component weren't there, it could fail. It fails to function at all, this blood clotting. Why is that important? It shows you macroevolution isn't true. It can't come about gradually. And yet even unbelievers, their blood clots when they're cut. But one day, all of that goodness 
will be make, make them all the more culpable if they don't come to faith in Christ. This is what Paul said in Romans 1.20. Notice what he says about God's common grace. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice Paul says that every human being on the planet is what? Without excuse. There's not one person that's innocent, maybe because they lived in some dark region of the earth where they never heard the gospel. They never heard one word about Jesus of Nazareth, yet they are still without excuse. Why? Because through God's creation, his common grace, he bestowed upon them good things where they should have seen his eternal power and his divine nature. In in many of the systems I just talked about, in your immune system, in creation itself. And so they are all without excuse. Let me tell you a story. I've told this before, but years ago, R.C. Sproul, the famous theologian, told the story where there was a man that was coming up to debate him. And he asked R.C. Sproul, he said, are you telling me, R.C. Sproul, that God would send an innocent aborigine to hell? Now, R.C. Sproul, of course, is about to debate this man, but he astutely says to him, well, of course, God would never send an innocent aborigine to hell. But then he went on to say, we have to ask ourselves, are there any such things as an innocent aborigine? And what Romans 1.20 is telling us is no. Instead of responding to the glory that God gives through his creation, through his common grace, truth be told, pagans become idolaters and they don't worship and serve the creator, They worship and serve the creation, according to Romans 1.25. So common grace is enough to hang you and make you without excuse. That's what common grace will do, because one day it will wear out, and God will pour forth his wrath. In fact, we see in Romans 2.4, Paul doubles down. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Stop there. Where does the unregenerate see kindness, tolerance, and patience? In common grace. And so they have common grace. And he says, do you not know that this kindness of God is to lead you what? To lead you to repentance. That's the purpose of it. Why? Because one day, God's common grace will cease to be. And he will pour his wrath upon his enemies, just as he's promised. And that's why every single person needs to trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ and become a partaker of his saving grace, of his special grace. Let me tell you the good news and the bad news that the Bible reveals. I want to make sure that if there's any unbeliever here or anyone that may be listening, that today they would hear the good news of the gospel. I like to say the good news of the gospel only makes sense in light of the bad news. The bad news that's revealed in the Bible is that every single human being, that's me and that's you, and everyone who's ever lived, We've all sinned and rebelled against God in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the news gets even worse when we consider the fact that the wages of sin is death. The just rewards or punishment, I should say, for our rebellion is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not just a temporary death where your body's thrown into the ground but one day in eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Yes, the lake of fire is real. It's not Eric Dama's doctrine. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who taught it. 
And so I can't think of any worse news than to realize that I'm a rebel against God. Left to my own devices, I'll be sent to hell to be tormented in the lake of fire forever. That's as bad as it gets. But it's precisely because of that bad news, the good news of the gospel shines so brilliantly like a diamond next to the backdrop of black velvet. The good news of the gospel is that God sent forth his son, the son who existed as God and with God from all eternity. At a point in time, he humbled himself and he became a man through the virgin birth. So Jesus came and became man, truly God, truly man in one person. Why did he do that? So that he could live the perfect life that you and I could not. You and I are not perfect, and we desperately need that perfection. So Jesus lives the perfect life so that by faith in him, his perfection can be credited to our account. But Jesus didn't just live the perfect life. He died a substitutionary death. Jesus the just on behalf of us the unjust in order that he might bring us to God. Jesus on the cross absorbed the full measure of God's wrath on behalf of his people so that we could have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The proof that Jesus accomplished this was seen by the fact that he was bodily raised from the dead on the third day and that this resurrection proves his claims. In John fourteen six, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, we can believe that. Why? He was raised from the dead. This Jesus ascended into the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of God from where he's coming again to bring a glorious kingdom for his people but wrath and judgment upon his enemies when his common grace wears out. What must we do? Jesus commands every single person to repent and to believe the gospel today. Repent means to turn and have a change of mind where you turn from idolatry and unbelief and you turn to God in his terms which is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. If you'll trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, become a partaker of his saving grace, a grace that will never wear out, you in fact have the forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of everlasting life. That's, I think, something that we need to learn today. Okay, so with that, let me come to my second point, and that's the major thrust of what Jesus is driving at today, and that is that we learn today that we must love our enemies. But we also learned in certain passages, like with David, that he hated God's enemies. And so how do we reconcile this between David, who is a righteous man, a man after God's own heart, hating enemies, and our call to love our enemies? Well, the first distinction that I think we have to make is the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Remember, Jeremiah the prophet said in Jeremiah 31 through 34, he said, when the new covenant would come, it would be different than the old covenant. Now, one of the ways it's different, of course, is the Spirit enables us to do what we can't do on our own. But another way that it's different is that, yes, those under the old covenant, the Israelite, they at times were called to be vessels of vengeance. Were they not called to wipe out the Canaanites and the Amorites? How many in here think that we should go do that? Well, hey, I'm in the church. I'm going to start wiping out those Canaanites. Bob has shown us in America's past, sadly, there are some Christians who think we should do that. We should try to find the Canaanites in America, whoever they may be, and start wiping them out. But no, there is a distinction between Israel and the theocratic kingdom and us as new covenant believers. The theocratic kingdom was designed to make Israel so eccentric 
that no one could mingle with them to preserve the messianic lineage. But when the Messiah comes, those walls are broken down. And under the new covenant, we as believers aren't called to be vessels of vengeance, but mercy. One day, the mercy of God will wear out, but it's the Lord himself who will do the judging. It's the Lord himself who brings the wrath in the future day of the Lord, not us, his people, here and now. That's the idea. And so the principle we're going to learn today, and I think it's a biblical one, is that, yes, we hate sin. We're called to hate evil. But we're also called at the same time to be good, gracious, and loving towards sinners and those who do evil. And so that's what we're called to do. Let me show you and build the case. I want to show you from God's character himself that if you and I are really sons and daughters of God, we have to be like him. Notice here what the psalmist says of God, Psalm 86, 15. He says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Let's start here with the character of God. Notice it's revealed here that God is merciful and gracious. The idea of mercy and grace, I like to think of those two concepts as two sides of the same coin. God being merciful means you don't get what you do deserve, wrath and judgment, ultimately. Him being gracious means you get what you don't deserve, forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, ultimately. And so our God is characterized by being merciful and gracious. In fact, it's summarized. Notice he's called a God of loving kindness and truth. That term loving kindness, chaset, in Hebrew, really is a summary of mercy and grace. So I will just say that it's the same as being grace. So literally, at the end, it's saying that God is gracious and truthful. He bestows love, but he also stands against error and evil. Does everyone see that? Think of it this way. This is what you and I are called to. We're called to be gracious, but we're called also to be people of truth. People of truth, we hate sin. People who have cassette, we love sinners. That's to be godlike. So let's make the analogy, analogy that I've used before is that of a river. I want you to think of a river, and in the river, you have the water being the grace, without which if you don't have any water, you got yourself just a gulch, good for nothing. If you have no grace, you're just a dry gulch, you're good for nothing. But the truth are like the banks of the river. If you don't have the banks, you got yourself a destructive flood, and that's not good for anything either. So we have to have both, and our God does. And so, yes, you and I have to stand for the truth. We stand against error. We stand against evil, but yet we love those who commit it. That's exactly what God does. And during this church age, you and I are to be those who are merciful and have loving kindness towards those who do evil. But yet we're to hate evil. And so we see this in Psalm 97.10. Notice the psalmist says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord who preserve the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. You and I confront false teaching. We confront those who do wicked things. That's not tolerated in the church of the living God. So we confront evil. And I'll show you in the next passage on the next slide, indeed, how we run this fine balance. But I also want you to see, yes, we're to hate evil. What does it mean to hate evil? To be a person of truth. But we're also called, notice on the screen, to have chaset, to have grace and mercy, 
We see that here in Jesus' words. A summary of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 6.36, he says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Notice Jesus does not say, Be vengeful as your Heavenly Father is vengeful. Do you know that we have a God who is a wrathful God against sin? He will be. He will pour out his wrath. But notice our call isn't to be vengeful or wrathful. Why? That's God's doing. That's God's role. We are to stay in our lane and be those who are merciful during the church age. That's what we're called to do. So, yes, we hate evil. We stand against false teaching. We stand against that which is contrary to God. But we're merciful to those who rebel. Let me show you a passage that I think succinctly tells us this. It's found in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. Now, when I put this passage up, I want you to realize that Paul had written this to pastors and elders, but I believe it's something that every Christian should glean from. Notice what he says of pastors, what he calls bondservants here. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Dear ones, notice here, we're called to be kind to all. What does that remind you of today in our Matthew passage? Doesn't God show kindness to all in his common grace? Yes. Or is it only for believers? No, he's kind to everyone. In fact, that's the calling that you and I have to be kind to all, demonstrate that common grace. The risk is that you and I would only be kind to those who agree with us theologically. But we're called to be kind even to the pagan, even to the pantheist, even to the Muslim, even to the Hindu. We're to be kind. That's showing chesed, grace. But does that mean we don't stand for the truth? Notice, no, we correct those who are in opposition, there we are, people of truth. We correct those who are in opposition. We don't allow false doctrine to go on. In Jude 3, we are to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. Yes, we are people who say this is the doctrines that come from God himself in the scriptures, and we will not deviate from them. We will not tolerate error, and we will correct those who are in opposition. But we're kind when we do it. We're kind and gracious. That's the calling that we have. Gracious, chesed, stand for the truth. We correct those who are in error. Why? He says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. Notice, where does repentance ultimately come from? It comes from God. Remember I said, as Jesus commanded us all to be perfect, as he is perfect, he's commanding us to do something that we can't do in and of our own power. Well, here we see repentance isn't something that the natural man can do. God grants it. The term grant there in Greek, didomi, can literally be rendered, he gives it. Why? Because dead sinners in Adam, left to their own devices, will never repent by their own power. God is the one who grants it. So the idea then, brothers and sisters, is you and I lovingly go into the world and we give the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed, God will use that to bring his sons and daughters to faith and into the kingdom being partakers of his saving grace. That's our role. We're not to beat people into the kingdom. You can't bash them over the head with the Bible. It won't do any good. I've tried. It won't do a lick of good. We're to be loving 
gracious to all, give the gospel in truth, and let God give the results. Remember some years ago, we had one of our friends in ministry, Mike Gendron, his great ministry in proclaiming the truth. And he came here one day from this lectern, this pulpit, and he said to all of us, you're like mail carriers. A mail carrier delivers the mail faithfully, but the results as to what people do with the mail, that's between them and God. You can be successful 100% of the time in giving the gospel. Why? You just faithfully, lovingly give it. And the results are up to God. Why? Because he's the one who grants repentance or not. That's our simple calling. Stay in our lane. Let us be those of cassette, love towards the unregenerate, but stand for the truth of the gospel. Now, not only are we called to love in this way and give the gospel as we stand against evil, but love the evildoer, but you and I are also called to be long-suffering. And this is the part that I think is the most difficult for us as Christians. When you and I are lied about, hated, mocked, spit on, rebuked by the world, because we belong to Christ, it is not easy to be long-suffering and loving in that way. And yet this is precisely where you and I have to remember that we belong to Christ. And because Christ was long-suffering with his enemies, even us, we have to be long-suffering like him. Doesn't it say in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross? Think about that. The Lord of glory was so long-suffering that while you and I were his rebels and enemies, he withstood all of the insults of this life could offer to die a substitutionary atonement on the cross, and he didn't have to? But he did. He was long-suffering. And didn't Jesus tell us today that we have to be that way? In fact, we have to be so long-suffering that we are to pray for those who hate us and therefore persecute us. And yes, this is precisely what Jesus modeled. He didn't just say it. He did it. Luke 23, 34, here's Jesus on the cross. It says, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Jesus doesn't just command us. Like, do you remember uh, the old, there was an old comedy where you had the general and he would order his men over the hill. Then as his men would disappear over the hill, he'd go the other way, right? (laughs) He would run the other way. Well, that's not Jesus. Jesus models what he commands, that we would love our enemies and pray for them. And dear ones, by the grace of God, you and I might have to do the same. This isn't something, by the way, that you and I volunteer for, martyrdom. According to 1 Peter 1.6, this is something that God providentially gives to his people as he sees fit. You don't, don't volunteer to be a martyr in Christianity. God will bring it to your door, and only by his grace will you stand. And I say this because we have another model of who was long suffering to this regard in this way. And that's Stephen. Notice Stephen in Acts 760. It says, then falling. Remember, he had preached the gospel. The Israelites hated him for it. They stoned him to death. And here he dies. It says, then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Isn't it interesting that Stephen, by the power of the spirit, was enabled by God to do the same thing that his Lord and Savior did? I want you to think about four verses prior to that. Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, remember, throughout the New Testament, the the Old Testament text that is most often quoted is Psalm 110.1, that the Messiah would be seated at the right hand of God. It's quoted 
more than any other Old Testament text by the New Testament writers. Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. And yet, when Stephen suffers, he's depicted as standing. Now, there's been a lot of discussion. Why does Jesus stand? Does he stand to receive Stephen? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us why. But what we can conclude is that he stood for one of his own when he suffered in this way. And what we can know is that Stephen, seeing Christ at the right hand of God, was very significant. Why? Because that's the allusion to Daniel 7 where the Messiah who's at the right hand of God, has an eternal kingdom. And so the point is, Stephen was willing to live for that kingdom rather than the pleasures of this earth. That is the only way any of us will be long-suffering and loving towards our enemies to this regard, in this, in this way. Do you love the coming kingdom or do you love this world? Dear ones, you and I learn today that we are to love our enemies, knowing that it's only Christ in us that can make this happen. And so as we go out the door, you and I do have a very high calling indeed, a calling that just to let you know, I don't always live up to, but by God's grace, I pray to be better. So as we go out the door, brothers and sisters, let us be those who have the gospel upon our lips and the love of God and his mercy in our hearts and love as Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your promises. We thank you for the promise of saving grace that it will never end. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given us this high calling, but we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to do it, that we would see our enemies in this culture, which are so difficult at times to get along with. We pray, Lord, that you give us a love for them, the gospel upon our lips, and I do pray, Lord, that you'd regenerate hearts before us, that as we go out with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, that you would regenerate their hearts, enabling them to believe the gospel that we preach. Give us boldness to preach. We pray for understanding. We pray for your love to be upon us for the sake of your people and your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction from Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. Have a wonderful week.